Timothy. I teach and write about apologetics, and as far as I'm concerned, the perfect Christmas season stays above 70 degrees without a single snowflake anywhere in sight. And I'm Garrick. It's December, mid-50 degrees. That's not near cold enough for me, and I'm pretty angry about it. Well, it's an accusation that's been around a long time. Even in ancient times, certain critics of Christianity noticed some parallels between Christian beliefs and pre-Christian myths. In the late 2nd century, a pagan philosopher named Celsus claimed that Christians had used pagan myths in fabricating the story of a virgin conception. And in more recent times, skeptics like Marvin Meyer and Robert Price have claimed close connections between the resurrection of Jesus and the myths of the dying and rising deities that marked many pagan myths. And so is it possible that the miraculous conception and resurrection of Jesus in the Gospels actually does come from pagan myths? Well, that's the question that we'll be exploring in the first half of this episode. And then in the second half, we'll take a look at the song We Didn't Start the Fire by Mr. Piano Man himself, Billy Joel. And we are giving away the Infinity Gauntlet. That means if you're the winner, you can snap away half of humanity, which is why we aren't actually sending the gauntlet to anyone until after the holiday. If you're interested in pursuing kingdom diversity and racial reconciliation in your context, take a look at For God So Loved the World by Walter Strickland and Dayton Harmon, forthcoming from our friends at B&H Academic. That's For God So Loved the World, a blueprint for kingdom diversity. Learn more at bhacademic.com. Welcome to Three Chords and the Truth, the Apologetics Podcast. I'm Timothy Paul Jones. Each week, my co-host Garrick Bailey and I tackle an issue related to apologetics. Then we go looking for God's truth by reviewing a moment from the history of rock and roll. Thank you for joining us today on Three Chords and the Truth, where we defend the faith, do justice, and dig for truth in rock and roll. Timothy, I have a question for you. In this Christmas season, I'm wondering, what are some of the best and worst Christmas traditions that you've heard of or have observed yourself or have seen other folks observing? Well, I think actually one of the worst ones, we may offend some listeners, but we do that quite often. So, And that is Elf on a Shelf. Ooh. That is terrible. Yeah, It is like the most non-grace, works-based. It goes every everything about the Reformation, elf on a shelf goes against everything. It is like an indulgence system for your family. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've seen some people have fun with it and not use it how you're supposed to use it, but I would completely agree with you. In, in our house, when we say elf on the shelf, we're talking about the DVD in a closet somewhere, if you know what I'm there saying. There we go. Yeah. So there are some skeptics that have claimed that the story of Jesus is not only false, but it's plagiarized. The virgin birth, the resurrection of Jesus were actually borrowed from earlier pagan beliefs. Yeah, that's one of the things that is important to me for us to talk about at some point, and this is partly why we're talking about it, because at a time in my life when I was really wrestling with the truthfulness of the Gospels and of the Bible, that was something that I started reading some books about that, and I became really convinced that maybe this had been borrowed from pagan traditions, and I read some books that seemed really, really convincing. Mm. And it's one of those things now that I know is a very weak argument 
argument against Christianity, but it is something that people face from time to time. And to be sure, there really are some surface level similarities between ancient myths and certain events in the Gospels. Long before the first century AD, there were the myths of the Egyptian deities like Osiris and Horus and others that included tales of death and rebirth that kind of sound vaguely similar to a resurrection. There's Mithras, who, according to some people, we'll talk about this in a moment, according to some, was born of a virgin and who died and rose from the dead. There's all these different things that sound very similar to things in the New Testament. But here's what I realized over years of wrestling with this, and especially during those few months, I really wrestled with this when I was in college. And it's first off, these pagan parallels really aren't as parallel as the proponents claim. And secondly, many of these supposed parallels actually confuse later Christian practices with what it says in the New Testament Gospels. Yeah, I remember first encountering some of these parallels not in written form, but in some documentary or documentaries that were going around like in the early 2000s. And it became even more powerful when put in this visual artistic format with that very serious music in the background. It was very Dan Brownish, this documentary. But what do you mean when you say that the pagan parallels aren't really all that parallel. Well, what I mean by that is when you look at the actual sources, like the pagan sources and the records we have, these supposed parallels, often they don't really have anything in common or have very little in common with the New Testament narrative. So like, for example, sure, there are myths of dying and rising gods outside of Christianity prior to Christianity, but these deities typically, in most of these instances, they died and they rose every year, which is just a very different thing than the once and for all sacrifice for the sake of others that we find in the Gospels and being raised from the dead once and for all. The pagan myths of miraculous births, again, they're much closer to this idea of more of a divine impregnation where a mortal woman, she conceives a child as a result of sexual relations with a god than to the virginal conception that we see in the Gospels according to Matthew and Luke. I think of a a guy named James Tabor who was a professor at University of North Carolina who does not believe in the virginal conception of Jesus. He denies that Jesus rose from the dead. And yet listen to what even he has to say about these parallels, these supposed parallels between the virgin conception of Jesus and these gods who are divinely impregnating someone. He says this, When you read the accounts of Mary's unsuspected pregnancy, what is particularly notable is an underlying tone of realism that runs through the narratives. As I said, remember, this guy isn't a believer at all. He doesn't believe in the virgin birth. He doesn't believe in the resurrection. But he even says there's an underlying tone of realism in the Gospels. He says, continuing, these seem to be real people living in real times and places in contrast to the birth stories in Greco-Roman literature that have a decidedly legendary flavor to them. For example, in Plutarch's account of the birth of Alexander the Great, his mother Olympias got pregnant from a snake. It was then announced by a bolt of lightning that sealed her womb so that her husband Philip could not have sex with her. Granted, both Matthew and Luke include dreams and visions of angels, but the core story itself, that of a man who discovers his bride 
bride-to-be is pregnant and knows he is not the father has a realistic and thoroughly human quality to it. The narrative, despite its miraculous elements, rings true. This is somebody who's not even a believer, but he's sufficiently familiar with the Greco-Roman literature and with the New Testament to recognize that what we see in the gospel is something distinctly different from what we are seeing in the Greco-Roman stories of divine births. So let's look at one particular pagan parallel. You mentioned this earlier and you said we'd come back to it. So let's talk about the parallel of Mithras. Tell us about that. What is this about? Well, this is interesting because it's one of the things that most people appeal to, the most common one. When I looked it up on the internet, even this morning, just kind of looking up, this is the big one. People say Mithras is basically the same as Jesus, and they borrowed Jesus from Mithras. Well, let's learn a little bit about this deity, Mithras. He's an Iranian deity. I've always thought that Mithras sounded like a, a bad monster movie. Or a great name for a band. I mean, I could see a band called Mithras. Only if you put the umlaut over the I. Yes, and change the I to a Y with with an umlaut over yes. it. It would be amazing. Mithras. Could, could, could you go double metal umlaut over the Y and I think the so. A? We could out umlaut Motley Crue at that point. That would be amazing. <laughs> the band Mithras. There's oh. our band right there. Okay. But okay. the actual word Mithras is the Akkadian word for contract. That's what it actually means. And Mithras was a originally a god of contracts and orderliness and friendship. And the Mithras cult appears around the same time within a century or so of the birth of Jesus and became particularly popular among Roman soldiers. Roman soldiers were very strong practitioners in many cases of the religion of Mithraism. It was a mystery religion, which means it wasn't a public religion. It didn't have these public temples like other gods. And it meant that you had to be initiated in to the religion to participate in it, and they often worshiped in caves. Now, according to some people, the story of Jesus's birth in particular was borrowed from Mithraism, because according to these people, and again, pulled this off the internet just recently, somebody making this claim, Mithras was virgin born in a cave, and a cave could also be used as a stable, so they went from there to virgin born in a cave that was also a stable, and he was attended by shepherds. And so this person concludes that the story of Jesus must have been borrowed from Mithraism. But if you actually look at the historical sources, here's what you find. First off, Mithras is birthed from solid stone and he got stuck on the way out. Okay. I kind of envisioned this. Do you remember from when you were a kid, Winnie the Pooh, when he was going into rabbit's hole? It's apparently something like that. So Mithras is birthed out of solid stone. He gets stuck on the way out. Some nearby people in a field pulled him from the stone. And just because they're in a field doesn't mean they were shepherds. That's what this person is claiming. They're in the field. Therefore, they must have been shepherds. They help pull Mithras out and he leaves a cave behind him because he's birthed out of solid stone. But referring to that as a virgin birth seems to me to be a bit of a stretch. I mean, I'm sure the rock is a virgin. I'm just not sure how you tell if a rock is a virgin. How do rocks lose their virginity? I have no clue about these particular topics. That's a conversation we're not going to pursue. Exactly. We are keeping this totally PG (laughs) at this point, but we just want to point out that it is a bit of a stretch to call that a virgin birth. Are there other supposed parallels between Jesus and Mithras? Well, there's a lot. Again, a lot of these on the internet, you can find these claims about this, and I'll just pull out just a few 
two of them. One of them says that Mithras initiated a meal in which the terminology of body and blood mm. were used. The funny thing about that is that the earliest evidence of that actually comes from the middle of the second century. And so it's a century or more after the time of Jesus, it's far more likely in this one that Mithraism actually borrowed from Christianity than Christianity borrowing from Mithraism, because it's later that Mithraism actually develops some of these things about the bread and the wine, body and blood, if in fact that's actually even true, and even that it's pretty fuzzy and vague, Mm. even if it is. But even assuming that it is, it comes a century or more later, after the time when that's initiated and spoken of in Christianity. Another one, Mithras supposedly sacrificed himself for the sake of others. And yet the fact is, if you look at both the art and the descriptions in Mithraism, Mithras is frequently depicted in the act of sacrificing a bull, but Mithras himself never becomes the sacrifice. He does the sacrificing. Mm. One more, just pulling one off the internet that I found that somebody claimed is that the resurrection of Mithras was celebrated on Sunday. Therefore, this must have been borrowed in Christianity that the first day of the week was the day of resurrection and the day that was celebrated by Christians. Well, in the first place, there's no surviving evidence from the pre-Christian era for a celebration of the resurrection of Mithras on the first day of the week. Now, it's possible they celebrated on the first day of the week. Mithras was sometimes associated with the sun, and often the first day of the week became the day of celebration for deities and worship that was associated with the sun. And yet what we find in the New Testament Gospels, this is pretty clear that by using the first day of the week and by speaking of that, the point of that in the narrative context of the Bible has more to do with the fact that God is, through Jesus, establishing a new creation. It's as if that's the eighth day of creation. In other words, God started over again in creation. It has more to do with that in the narrative structure of the Bible than anything to do with the sun or Sunday. And just think of the fact that the New Testament arises from this very Jewish context that would have despised any connection to paganism, and yet it would have thrived on and seen as valuable connections to the Old Testament. And so it makes far more sense that the first day of the week was a declaration that God is starting a recreation, we might say, of his world. You mentioned earlier about a confusion of later Christian practices in these pagan parallels. So in what ways do you see pagan parallels sometimes confuse the historical claims of the New Testament with later practices that make their way into Christianity? Well, one of those I think that's really important has to do with the date of Christmas. Mm. Often the charge is made that the date of Christmas is based on the winter solstice, and that those things mean that Christmas is borrowed from pagan sources. And not only is it borrowed from pagan sources, but therefore the idea of Christmas and this miraculous birth of Jesus must yep. be fabricated from pagan sources. Literally had this conversation not an hour before our recording, completely unrelated to this. They didn't even know we were discussing this. It just came up when the discussion of Christmas and family traditions came up. You just hear it a lot, and you especially hear it, oddly enough, you hear this conversation happen most in certain Christian circles. Mm -hmm. That's the funny thing. 
Yeah, it is. And I think there's two things we have to recognize in this. First off, in terms of the historicity of the Gospels, this is irrelevant because the Gospels never actually claim a particular date when Jesus was born. They don't. They do not ever make this claim, and therefore it becomes irrelevant at that level. Now, at another level to do with should we actually practice these things? Should we do these things? Should we as Christians celebrate something that might have some connection back to pagan rituals or something like that? I think it has to do with us asking ourselves, what is it we're really celebrating? What is it we are actually celebrating in that? And a recognition, again, going back to something I've already hinted at, that could it be that all of these ideas of new life and all those things in creation, what if those actually do point forward to who Jesus was? This is something we get so beautifully in Augustine. Augustine, several times, he basically says, I'm just kind of paraphrasing the idea here, that God has created the world in such a way that he created it with Jesus already in mind. I think that is so beautiful. In other words, what Augustine suggests is the reason we have seasons is because God created the world with Jesus already in mind, his death and his resurrection. You see this in the best of theologians have a holistic enough view of the world that they recognize God creates with Jesus already in mind. That is a reformed perspective. And in that, we can celebrate Christmas with joy and gusto because of the fact that we say Christmas exists, that the winter solstice exists because God had the death of Jesus already in mind. And not even points to, but is connected to, that they're organically, if you will, connected to God, all these things, because he is the God who created all things. You won't be surprised that another favorite Dutch theologian, I won't mention him by name, says some similar things. And so that would be good old Herman Bavink. Old old Herm. (laughs) So let's suppose for a moment. It's really (laughs) Bavink. Let's suppose for a moment that some patterns that were present in the life of Jesus could be found in some pre-existing religion. Would this weaken the historical foundations of the Christian faith as so many critics like to claim? And I don't think it would. And the reason it wouldn't is simply because two reasons. One of them is that it is conceivable that God could choose in his providence to act in a certain way that makes sense in the culture he's coming into. Mm. That makes perfect sense. God contextualizes. So even if God were to have borrowed, so to speak, from something in doing that, something in the culture, why would that diminish the truthfulness or the historicity of the Bible just because God did that? Absolutely. And again, to go back to your previous point, if you hold what we would say is the proper view of God, we can only consider it borrowed in a sense because... He would have known of this context, this pre-existing narrative before the foundations of the earth. Exactly. And what I would add to that is both in creation and fall, there are certain longings and patterns Mm. of the human heart that are there. Why? 
because God yes. made it that way. Even though in the fall it becomes twisted, even in the fall it becomes distorted, God still created us with certain longings for redemption and longings and recognitions about redemption that God could act in history in ways that reflected those, not because God is somehow creating something in response to us, but rather because we are having those longings, those yearnings in response to how he created. Absolutely. Absolutely. Here's what C.S. Lewis had to say about this possibility. He says, in the New Testament, the thing really happens. The dying God really appears as a historical person living in a definite place and time. The old myth of the dying God comes down from heaven of legend and imagination to the earth of history. It happens at a particular date in a particular place, followed by a definable historical consequence. And we must not be nervous about parallels in other religions. They ought to be there. It would be a stumbling block if they weren't. And that's why we shouldn't worry about if things like the date of Christmas have a pagan origin or something like that, because these parallels, if they do exist, it's simply revealing that God has acted and done in history that which he created us with a longing, a desire, an inclination toward all the way back in the beginning. So. What should you do the next time someone pulls out a pagan parallel instead of turning and running, screaming away from them? We're going to give you three recommendations. Here's the first one. Number one, locate the primary source with the rarest of exceptions. The primary sources, that is to say, the actual ancient texts that describe the actual pagan practices that we have records of. With the rarest of exceptions, these don't actually include any real parallels to the New Testament. Here's the second one, and that is determine whether the supposed parallel comes before or after the New Testament. Because remember, all the texts in the New Testament were actually written within the first century, within the first century AD. And so if the pagan parallel is from a text that was written later than the first century, then the New Testament writers obviously couldn't have borrowed their information from that text. And Mm. here's why. They did not have DeLoreans with flux capacitors because, see, they couldn't travel back and forth in time. So if it occurs after the first century, we don't need to worry about it. And the third one is just simply to have a renewed perspective, a better perspective on the way God has created his creation and recognize that the reason there may be some echoes of the Christian story in the pagan stories is because God created us with certain yearnings and certain longings that cause even the pagan to come up with some things that occasionally look a lot like the Christian story. Yeah. And I think the big point to take away here is time travel would be so much cooler in a DeLorean than a telephone booth. It would be. Can we just all agree on that? Everything would be cooler in a DeLorean, even the Infinity Gauntlet. That's right. It is now time. What you've all been waiting for, when we draw a random question, a random recently added question from the Infinity Gauntlet. 
As we have said all year, this is that very gauntlet, which Thanos once wore and snapped his finger and eliminated half of life in the universe. All right. Well, the newly contextualized question, random question from the Infinity Gauntlet is this. And it's a two-part question. We have a battle going on. The first battle is a battle of cuteness. Who would you say wins in the hashtag cute emergency battle between baby Groot and the newly loved baby Yoda? That's part number one. And then number two, who would win in an actual battle? The battle of the babies. If the two had to fight for the heart of the Mandalorian, who would win in an actual battle between baby Groot and baby Yoda? I think in cuteness, I just have to say, I mean, and I, I'll admit I am not an expert on cute, but <laughs> but uh, we just have to recognize that lest we hold our manhoods cheap. Yeah. Uh, we shall make sure That's we right. recognize that. But I think that Groot is a lot cuter than baby Yoda. I would agree with you because Yoda's just not doing much yet. And baby Groot, like he speaks, even if it's just two words, it's two really cute words and a very cute voice. So I would agree with you on that. But we all know that cuteness in this fictional world that we have set before you, it doesn't matter. All that matters is what can you do on the battlefield when when it all comes down to it. So Yoda or Groot? I think Yoda's got that one because Groot is quite literally as a baby rooted for one thing. He can't move very much. He can wave around. He might be able to do his thing where he grows out branches. But Yoda, even as a baby, still has got the force. Yes, yeah, true. Now I'm thinking of, we should have clarified, I'm thinking of baby Groot in the beginning of volume two, not while he's still in the pot. You know, because it's not, this isn't really baby Yoda. He's 50 years old. He's able to stand. So it's more really toddler Yoda, but that doesn't, that's not as cool to say on Twitter. So it's really the battle of the toddlers. Okay. So they're walking. He's not in a pot. You still give it to Yoda? I still give it to Yoda yeah. because Yoda's got the force. Yeah, that's right. Well, he's already demonstrated that he can stop, he can suspend in the air a creature much, much larger than Baby Groot. So at the very least, he could throw Baby Groot in the air and suspend him there without using much effort at all. So I would agree. We don't know what all toddler Yoda can do yet, but we know that it's probably enough to dispense with Baby Groot pretty quick. Rock and roll. It's one of the greatest human inventions and one of the supreme expressions of God's common grace. The way we see it, the golden age of this invention began with Bob Dylan and ended with Pearl Jam. And that is why each week in the second half of the program, Garrick and I review one of our favorite songs and go digging for truth in classic rock. This is Timothy from the 1970s. And I'm Garrick from the 1980s. And this is the last music segment of season one and we're going to end this season one with a giveaway the first 10 new reviews from you listeners out in podcast land on the apple podcasts will receive a free copy of the new edition of perspectives on family ministry edited by our very own apologist extraordinaire and amazing podcast super guru of rock and roll history timothy 
Paul Jones. The only thing that would be better is if it were edited by Steve Perry. I mean, that would be the only thing that would be better, right? <laughs> and if somehow you wrote the book in 1986. There we go. Yes, in 1986. That would be great. And one of you will get something even better. I know it's hard to believe that there's anything better than a copy of Perspectives on Family Ministry, but one of you is going to get our Infinity Gauntlet. tell you how you can win these books and perhaps one of you, the Infinity Gauntlet. First off, leave a review of the podcast on Apple Podcasts. So leave a review, write a review. It doesn't even have to be a happy, good review. Mm -mm. It can be an angry, this is a terrible show review if you want to. You'll be lying, but we can still make that review and put it on there. But leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Then go to our website, threechordsapologetics.com. That's chords with an H, the kind you play, not the kind you plug. Three chords apologetics.com and click on contact. Now, when you click on contact, you'll be taken to a handy dandy form in which you can tell us your mailing address and the name you used when you wrote your review. So sometimes you use these fake names on the reviews and all of that, like Gnome AM or something like this. Red leaders. Red leader. Yes. So all these different ones that people use. So tell us the one, the alias that you're hiding under when you leave reviews on Apple podcasts. And the first 10 reviews that we verify will be winners. Now, also with your name, make sure you leave us your mailing address Mm. because we are going to send you, these are like physical copies of Perspectives on Family Ministry. Not and spiritual. They're not spiritual copies. They are physical <laughs> copies. And the Infinity Gauntlet is very physical. So yes. we will send your prize to your address, but only if you leave us your mailing address. And the first 10 reviews that we verify will receive copies of Perspectives on Family Ministry and one randomly chosen. And by randomly, we mean we reserve the right to choose however we want to. <laughs> because we'll just do it randomly. Trust us, it will be random whenever we're choosing it. And so anyway, that person who Mm. wins the Infinity Gauntlet will have the privilege of wiping out half of humanity. That's just like the greatest thing. You can win the privilege to wipe out half of humanity if you can snap in the Infinity Gauntlet. Well, speaking of wiping out half of humanity, our song that we'll be discussing this week is a personal favorite, at least the artist. This week we'll be talking about Billy Joel's We Didn't Start the Fire. Yes, and folks, notice I said whatever we do will be random. Notice that transition right there, and it reveals that whatever we do will be yeah, much like your choosing of this song. Exactly, say. it's everything we do is random. Billy Joel was my first concert that I went to. In fact, it was on this very tour, the Stormfront tour back in 91, 92 in Houston, Texas. It was my first concert. And Billy Joel, not this song, because that would be really odd, but it was a Billy Joel song that my wife and I danced to for our first dance as a newly married couple. She's got a way about her. I know that I can't live without her. So I have always been 
a huge Billy Joel fan, and that's because I'm more cultured than Timothy, and I can listen to songs that only have pianos and not guitars and drums, but that's just, that's me. I know that you can't handle like whole albums of piano music. Which I, I will get. admit, I, I cannot. I cannot. And I love my daughter so much, I took her to a Piano Guys concert one time. And it actually was a pretty good concert, but I will admit that by the end, I had to put some Van Halen on on the way home to <laughs> detox after all of that. So, uh, get it. well, get Billy it. Joel, he was born in the Bronx in 1949. So he's a quintessential baby boomer in terms of when he is born, 1949. His parents were Jewish, but they raised their children pretty much secular or non-religious. But he did attend a Roman Catholic church, a Roman Catholic congregation with his friends. And then in 1960, Billy Joel actually made a profession of faith at the Church of Christ in Hicksville, New York, which is on Long Island. And so there really is a Hicksville, New York. When I started reading the show notes and it said Hicksville, I did not expect to see New York following that. (laughs) Exactly. That was a funny moment. So anyway, it was in Hicksville, New York at the Church of Christ, and he was was baptized there at 11 years of age, but now Billy Joel identifies as an atheist. He has completely rejected any semblance of faith in God at all. And he wrote, we didn't start the fire actually after a conversation with John Lennon's son, Sean. So Sean Lennon, looking back over all that had happened in the baby boomer generation, things about the Beatles and the different ideals of the boomer generation, and wrote this song, we didn't start the fire afterwards. Yeah, so 40 years of history wrapped up in the song, which is funny because when I first heard this song, my earliest memories were I had a friend at school. And so in 89, I would have been 11. So we're talking like, I'm pretty sure this was fifth grade. I had a good friend whose name I think was Jason. And this song became really popular. And he came to school one day with all of the lyrics written out on the notebook paper. And he had memorized at this point the lyrics, which that was baffling. Like this was an impressive dude at that moment. And so I put myself to the same task of of memorizing the lyrics. And I did, and I love the song, and I can still sing it today, but back in 89, when I first heard this, I had no idea what I was saying. Now, musically, it may not be the greatest (laughs) song. In fact, Billy Joel himself declares it's not that great musically. He says, in fact, it's terrible musically. It's like a mosquito buzzing around your head. That's the person who wrote it saying that. Now, Blender Magazine, we don't trust Blender Magazine, but Blender Magazine said it was the 41st worst song ever ever that was ever performed or written, but we don't trust Blender Magazine because they put, we built this city on rock and roll at the worst song ever. You can't trust people like that. And not only is this impressive lyrically, Especially when, really, when you see all of the references listed out, what they refer to and which year, he really is staying chronologically pretty accurate, almost 100% wherever he can. And then even more impressive is then how he works it into this, this video where... They set up multiple scenes of a couple that changes with the times, with the decades he gets to. And then at the end of each of the stanzas, the verses, there's a significant historical 
image, a black and white picture that is burning, that gets set on fire, that's burning behind Billy Joel, which watching the video, we're pretty sure that that's actually happening. And the whole song, because the 40 years that it covers is filled with references mm. to the Cold War. You just think of Stalin, Budapest, Khrushchev, the Suez, Berlin, Bay of Pigs invasion. We could go on and on from things that references that are part of the Cold War, which was, of course, this tension between the communist world and the Western world world and this constant tension where it didn't break out into a full-fledged war, but a constant series of conflicts and tension between two very different sets of ideals in the Western world and in the communist world. And one of the things I have to explain to my children is we really did believe during this time that the Russians were coming. Yes. We really thought that or that nuclear war was coming. I remember when I was five and six years old, this phased out really early in my school years, but I remember when I was five or six years old that we would at times have a bomb drill in which we would put math books over our head and get under our desk in case there was a nuclear war. Now, if there was a tornado drill, we went out into the hallway and we sat with the books over our head. And even at that time, that baffled me completely for two reasons. One of them is why do we get under our desk if a nuclear bomb comes and we get in the hall if a tornado comes? The uh -huh. other one is, what is my math book actually going to profit me if there's a nuclear war? The key lines in this particular song, at least as far as I'm concerned, in the song, We Didn't Start the Fire, are in the last part of the chorus each time it says, we didn't start the fire, and then it says, no, we didn't light it, but we tried to fight it. We tried to fight it. And remember that he is, as we said earlier, a quintessential baby boomer. So he really is a baby boomer born soon after World War II, part of the boomer generation. And remember that in the boomer generation in particular, there was a, a real and sincere belief that if we leave behind past power structures and past social expectations, we can actually achieve peace. There was a real and authentic belief in that. And some of that was the ideological background for that was in the rise of the new left and Herbert Marcuse. One of the things to read in this that may be helpful to understand it is his essay called Repressive Tolerance. And in that essay, what he argues is that it's not enough merely for those that don't have a voice to be given a voice to protest. Rather, we have to silence the powers of the past to create a new future that places progressive powers in charge. And that was the dream of the baby boomers and of a lot of the protest movements in the 1960s and the 1970s. And yet that doesn't actually work out. In fact, what really happens in the long term is deeper conflicts around the world, deeper divisions at home. And so Billy Joel says, we didn't start the fire. No, we didn't light it, but we tried to fight it. It's a recognition that we, the boomers, we tried is what he's saying, but the boomer vision for solving the divisions that are tearing the world apart really 
died. They mm. didn't really take place. They didn't really achieve the peace that they were looking for. And as we've already talked about the video, you see in the background the atrocities, both of his parents' generation and of his own generation. A lot of the pictures that come up behind Billy Joel that burn are different pictures of different atrocities that took place in his parents' generation and in his own. And by the end, it's clear that his generation has done no better than his parents' generation in bringing peace to the world, that there are no good old days when things were perfect and the change that they've really hoped for and tried to achieve, that change never really took place, never really happened in the way they thought it would. Which shouldn't surprise us, those of us who are Christians, Scripture tells us in more than one place, but specifically in Ecclesiastes 7.10, do not say, why were the old days better than these? For it is not wise to ask such questions. There's nothing new under the sun. Human depravity and human brokenness continue from generation to generation to generation. What Billy Joel, I think it's interesting as well, what he didn't know in 1989 when he wrote this song is that in some sense he really was chronicling the beginning to the end of a particular era because he didn't know what was happening in 1989 after he wrote this song. Now, 1989 is a momentous year. In fact, the theologian Thomas Oden says that modernity can be measured from 1789 to 1989. (laughs) Now, he's a good enough historian. He realizes that history really doesn't work in these precise intervals like that. But he says it's from the French Revolution in 1789 to the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989 marks a particular era. Now, even though Thomas Oden may be overstating it in stating this exact 200 years of modernity, it's important to recognize that 1989 did close out an era. There is something momentous that happens there with the fall of communism and the fall of the Berlin Wall that was very momentous. It transformed society in some very real ways. From ABC, this is World News Tonight with Peter Jennings, reporting tonight from Berlin. From the Berlin Wall specifically, take a look at them. They've been there since last night. They are here in the thousands. They are here in the tens of thousands. Occasionally they shout, Die Mauer muss weg, the wall must go. Thousands and thousands of West Germans come to make the point that the wall has suddenly become irrelevant. Something, as you can see, almost a party on. How do you measure such an astonishing moment in history? And think through this for a moment about the effect and why this is is so significant. Because in some sense, since communism was officially atheistic, it was godless in its very core all the way back to its Marxist origins. Mm. Communism was atheistic, godless, materialistic. But what it developed in the Western world, but particularly in the United States, is sort of an idea of a God and America coalition. We're together against the communists. Mm. And I think that really drew Americans together. We have a common enemy, the communists. And before that, we had a common enemy, Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan. We had this common enemy and then moved straight from that to communism being the enemy. The United States had had a common enemy to unite itself, and it did have this this kind of idea of a God and America coalition against the godless communists. And that was just a very real and palpable 
kind of a, an assumption almost mm. in the 1980s in particular, it was really there, deeply woven within in the 1980s and even before that as well. And suddenly in 1989, with the fall of communism, America no longer has a common enemy. And I think that what happens in that, and several historians have stated different forms of the same kind of thought, is that America without a common enemy didn't know quite what to do. And it's turned people inward to where your enemy becomes those to the right or to the left of you, depending on where you happen to stand. And we have with this the emergence of identity politics and things like that that really have torn away at the fabric of America and polarized people. And yeah. we are currently living in the consequence of the world that began with this fragmentation that emerges after the fall of communism in 1989. And that wasn't the only thing that changed with the end of the Cold War. Music also changes at this time. Right around 89, 90, 91, 92, right? So over the next handful of years, you're going to have the emergence of a, a new, I'm using air quotes, a new style of music. And we can't get into all the history of it because we're probably already going too long. But suddenly you have this new music that becomes popular that we call grunge. And grunge music seems to have the same type of anger that we can see and hear in Billy Joel's We Didn't Start the Fire, but it's it's directed elsewhere or perhaps not directed anywhere. Instead of anger, it seems to be more angst. Right. You have other music that is angry, but directs that anger toward injustice, mm. whether that's gangster rap. That's one expression of that. Which I also you listen have, to. You have metal that did it in a different way. You have the folk and the rock music of the 70s that mm. did it in the 60s and 70s, did it a still different way. But you have all these different musical forms that have had anger, but it's directed towards some degree of injustice or something like that. Suddenly you have grunge that just is angry and we're not really sure why. We're just, it was angry just because it was angry for its own sake. And so again, this is another part of that fragmentation that we begin to see in music, in society, in culture as a whole. So as I said earlier, the key words in Billy Joel's song are, we tried to fight it. We tried to fight it. And what we begin to see in that, in these words, we tried to fight it, is that they did. They tried to fight injustice. They tried to fight war, but without a clear vision for a justice that was grounded in the goodness of a transcendent God. That's really what had happened. Now, I think it's very interesting and important that the one social change movement that did achieve some degree of success was the civil rights movement, seeking civil rights for African-Americans. And what was different about that? That movement was grounded in Christian rhetoric in which it was claiming, it was proclaiming, it was declaring the equal value of people before God on the basis of their creation in God's image. 
was part of what drove that. And it was filled all the way through. It came out of the African-American church and it was filled with biblical imagery and woven through with the, the stories of scripture that point to a transcendent God. And even if many of the people in that movement may not actually have believed or practiced that, it was still the rhetoric of the movement was deeply Christian and grounded in a vision of a transcendent God. Grace is necessary to restore nature, to restore the way that God created and designed this world to be. Now, that brings us to what actually is my favorite song by Billy Joel, <laughs> which is interesting because I usually don't like bouncy, happy songs. True. But I find this one fascinating because of the fact that it takes lyrics that are actually really dark lyrics and puts them to a different music than you would expect. And that song is River of Dreams from 1993. And some of the words to that song are, In the middle of the night, I go walking in my sleep, from the mountains of faith to the river so deep, I must be looking for something, something sacred I lost. But the river is wide, and it's too hard to cross. Mm. This is Billy Joel, the atheist, saying there's something sacred that I have lost. In the middle of the night, I go walking in my sleep, from the mountains of faith, to the river so deep, I must be looking for something, something sacred I lost, but the river is wide, and it's too hard to cross. There's something sacred I've lost. And even in the video of that song, the whole song is just imbued with this spirit of the African-American spiritual and the African-American church. And in fact, the video itself culminates in a baptism. You've got an atheist singing a song that the video culminates in a baptism. And what do we see in this? We see that Billy Joel, the atheist, knows there is something missing. He knows there is. Now, what he hasn't done is connected the dots here. And that's what we're going to do is kind of connect the dots. That is to say, he says, we tried to change things, but we couldn't change it. We couldn't change it. And now he says, there's something sacred that I've lost. And if we connect those two dots together, what we begin to see is that the reason that lasting change didn't happen in the way he thought it would and thought it should is because he had turned his back and, in fact, most in an entire generation had turned their back in many ways on a transcendent God who could bring authentic transformation and change and justice. Thank you for joining us today. If you want to connect with the two of us, check out threechordsapologetics.com. That's chords with an H, the kind you play, not the kind you plug. If you're interested in choosing one of the songs we review in the future or in picking up Three Chords and the Truth merchandise, go to patreon.com slash threechordsandthetruth. My name is Timothy Paul Jones, and I'm already looking forward to joining you next time on Three Chords and the Truth. I love you.
Oh 